Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. We are so glad that you're here today. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and today's message is from our series in Acts titled Continuation. Today, Kirk Katsorki is going to be teaching from Acts chapter 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing what it looks like to identify and adopt God's truth. So open your Bibles and make sure to follow along as we get started. All right, good morning. Oh, so this morning we're going to be uh, in Acts chapter 22, the final verse is verse 30, and then that'll turn the page to chapter 23 and we'll go through verse 11. Um, and uh, this passage, we're talking about spotting truth. And so uh, the central question that, that we have to answer as, uh, as Christians, as, as people in general, I believe the central question we have to answer is, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? This is the central question that we have to answer. And, uh, and so as we talk about spotting truth, our role is not to find what we like and call it truth. That's not our job. We don't find what we like and say, that's truth. But our job is to find the truth and learn to like it. Um, and uh, one of the things that we run into within our society is that truth is, is subjective, right? And so guys like Freud and Jung and different philosophers come along and they, they begin to tell us that our experience is what dictates truth and the culture that we live in is what dictates truth and uh, truth is this subjective thing. And, and so it, it could be different for you and different for me. It could be different for somebody that lives in Africa and different for somebody that lives in Asia. It's all dependent upon our experience. Truth is subjective. Um, and there are some elements of in ways that that is, that is the case. But objective truth, the question is, is there an objective truth that is true for all people of all time? Is there an objective truth that we can count on? Um, and when Jesus shows up, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He makes this bold claim that there's nobody, there's no other way to the Father except through him, that he is the way, that he is the truth. He is the singular objective truth, that in him, if you want to know truth, and we all do, if you want to know truth, you find it in him. Then he claims to be the life. That means that you can't find life in created things. That means you can't find life in your job. You can't find life in, in your marriage. You can't find life in your children. You can't find life in money. You can't find life in experiences. You have to go to him. Now, money and your family and your wife and your job, those are all good things that God has given to us. But they're not an ultimate thing. And what we all struggle with is we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. In our search for truth, we, we take something that is subjectively, this feels good to me. I'm going to call it truth. And so we all struggle with this question. So our job is not to find what we like and call it truth. Our job is to find the truth and learn to like it. And so when we meet Jesus, that's what he calls us to do. Uh, he, he tells us that we have to take up our cross daily and follow him. He tells us uh, that, that we're not worthy of him if we put our family in front of him, that we're not worthy of him if we put our children in front of him. Uh, he, he makes these really big statements. And you, and you hear those things, you go, man, that, that sounds like a lot. But really what he's telling us is that if you put me first, you're going to be the best dad you could ever be. If you put me first, you're going to be the best husband you could ever be. If you put me first, you're going to find more value and, and joy in your work than you ever found before. If you put me first, you're going to find uh, more joy and experience life to the fullest if you put me first. Like you can enjoy creation, but to enjoy creation through the eyes of God who made it, that's different. 
You can enjoy sex, but to enjoy sex inside the confines of marriage, where it's this bond between man and woman, where God has said, I've joined you together in covenant, and you're going to know each other, and you're naked and unashamed. You're going to know each other mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and then there's going to be a physical overflow that comes from that. This is a good thing. But what we do is we take that, and we make it an ultimate thing, and we pervert it. And we do that not just with sexuality, but with all sorts of things. And so, as we go through this passage, what I want to show you um, is, is how to spot truth and how we should focus truth around the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Um, what we know about truth should be focused around the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so as we go through this passage, give you a little contextual reminder, uh, Paul last, last week, and, and for him it would be the previous day, he was nearly killed by an angry mob of Jewish leaders and their followers. Um, Roman soldiers intervened and they bring order to the situation. And then Paul is held under Roman protection and now the Roman commander wants to get to the bottom of the situation. He's looking for the truth. And what we saw in this interaction um, between Paul and the Jewish leaders is Paul was one of the Jewish leaders. He was a member of the council he's going to stand before called the Sanhedrin. Uh, he went through a period of life where he was uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the cream of the crop of this group of people. Uh, he, was, he was educated by the best mind of his time. Um, and he became probably one of the best minds of his time. He's very learned. Uh, he understands the Jewish scriptures, but he also, he's grown up in a Hellenized culture, and so he understands uh, the, the Greek way of thinking, and he understands philosophy, and so he's able to communicate with both Jews and Gentiles, and because of that, God sends him to the Gentiles. He, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus physically appears to him, um, and uh, then blinds him, and then rega he regains his sight and becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, and he shares the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection with people who are non-Jewish. He shares it with Jewish people too, but his ministry is primarily to Gentile cities. And in the process of this, he makes the Jewish people upset because he tells the, the, he tells the Gentile people that they don't have to follow the Jewish customs. And so that's what they're angry with him about. And as Paul shares this story of him meeting Jesus and being transformed, uh, the, the Jewish leadership that he's talking to, they find themselves in a situation where they realize that they are broken just like Paul used to be, but they don't want the light shined on their brokenness, and so they go after Paul. And so he has been uh, basically saved by the Roman soldiers at this point in time. He's under Roman guard, and as we get into this passage, we're going to see that the Roman commander is going to bring him back in front of the Sanhedrin and try and figure out what the truth of this situation is. So let me pray, and we'll take a look at this passage. So Father, this morning we come to you uh, searching for truth. We come to you uh, desiring to understand what is right and what is good, what is true, uh, what is justice. Uh, how do you define these things? What is true about the world that we live in? What is true about the political environment that we find ourselves in and how should we interact with it? So, God, God we want your, your scripture to reveal these things to us ultimately through the person of Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection is what we count on. It's what we believe in. I also ask God uh, this morning that you would get me out of the way, any weakness that I have, any struggle that I am dealing with, that you would move me out of the way and speak directly through me to the people here this morning uh, so that they can hear what they need to hear about who you are and the relationship that you desire to have with them. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 30 of chapter 22. 
It says the next day, since he, that's the commander, wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to convene. So Paul is taken from a uh, uh, military quarters that is directly next to the temple in Jerusalem, and he's brought into, back into the temple, and, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, convenes along with chief priests. And so Paul is brought in, and uh, he, he definitely knows this place. Uh, Paul has sat on the other side of uh, these topics of conversation. He has, he has been in the Sanhedrin. He knows where he is. He knows who he's talking to. They brought Paul down and placed him before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. And so that, that word look straight at, it means that he studied them. Uh, he looked at them and he studied them and said, brothers, I have lived all my life. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. So he begins by defending himself. And the first thing he says is, I've lived before God in all good conscience. And that, that, that phrase, good conscience, it means a gentle or beneficial moral inner moral disposition towards others. The idea is that he said, I have lived in a gentle and beneficial moral way towards others. I've lived my life that way before God, which is an interesting statement because we know that Paul was once a murderer. He was once involved in uh, going after Christians and making sure that they were put to death. And so he must be talking about his time since he's become a Christian. He must be talking about since he's become a follower of Jesus. He's lived in a gentle and beneficial, with a gentle and beneficial moral disposition towards others. He's cared for them and sought their best. And then it says the high priest Ananias ordered that those were standing next to him to strike him in the mouth. So Paul begins by defending himself and the first sentence comes out and he gets punched in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And that phrase, whitewashed wall, was a, was a phrase that uh, uh, Jesus used of the Pharisees, a similar phrase. He called them whitewashed tombs. The idea was that they were decaying and broken on the inside, but they had been cleaned up on the outside. They pretended to be something they were not. He's calling, them, he's calling him a hypocrite. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law, you are ordering me to be struck. And so we see in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and Leviticus 19 that there were rules about how uh, trials were to be held and when a, when a prisoner could be struck and when they could not. And he's saying, you're standing here uh, pretending to be something that you're not, and you're in violation of your own law by having me struck. And so Paul, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. He can barely get a word out before his mouth is uh, smacked. And then all too similar to Jesus' trial. This, this sounds so much like what Jesus went through a couple decades earlier. And in John 18, it talks about Jesus before the high priest. And it says, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. It says, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather. And I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? And I love Jesus' response. He says, if I've spoken wrongly, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas, the high priest, sent him, Annas sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so Paul, he, he shows up before the Sanhedrin, and in his trial, he starts to defend himself, and he's immediately hit in the mouth. Jesus, some couple decades earlier, he's standing before uh, the, this council, and he, as soon as he says something, he's also struck in the mouth. 
And so there's an interesting observation that's available to us. You, you hear this phrase. Uh, what, did, what did Jesus mean when he said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth you have heard, but I tell you do not an, resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn the other to him also. For the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile with him, go too. Give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so you, you look at this passage and uh, Paul is struck in the mouth. I'm going to show you in a second what he does. Jesus is struck in the mouth and he immediately calls them out for their wrong behavior. And so you look at this and you go, do Jesus and Paul turn the proverbial cheek in these instances? And it doesn't look like they do. Instead, what they do is they stand up to tyrannical behavior. They point out character flaws and they, dem they demand a higher standard from those in leadership. When Jesus speaks of an eye for an eye and turning the cheek, he's explaining Old Testament laws that were given to protect the innocent and the poor and to make sure retaliation didn't occur. That was the goal, no retaliation. Legal retribution was right and good, but retaliation was not. And so you look at this and it sort of begs the question for us as we, as we live in the, the world that we do now, is it right for a Christian to operate inside the legal system of their nation for what is right, what is good, and what is just? And the answer is yes, of course it is. We can do that. Is it right for a Christian to seek retaliation? You're harmed by the legal system. Is it right for you to seek retaliation? And the answer to that is no. We've been given the, the ministry of reconciliation, and that's quite different from retaliation. And so as you look at this in legal situations, Christians are not called to be passive pushovers, but compassionate justice seekers. We try to understand the other person, and we seek justice. In both situations, it's okay to call out the flaws that exist. It's okay to name them for what they are. But Christians are not called to be passive pushovers. Compassionate justice seekers is what we're after. So Paul makes this statement of the high priest, and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're in violation of the law that you claim to be upholding. So he goes on from there in verse 5, and he says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. That's an interesting statement, because Paul has been to the Sanhedrin many times. He was a member of it. He, he knows who's there and who's speaking. And so there's different explanations of this. Some people say that Paul's bad eyesight caused him to not know who was speaking. Some people say that there was some confusion. But he looks at them and studies them carefully. And so I actually think this is a statement sort of of sarcasm. Oh, I didn't know, brothers, that this was the high priest. He's making a statement of here's this person who's supposed to be God's representative. Here's this person who's supposed to uphold the law. And he's not acting like he sh he's the high priest. So I didn't know it was him. Then he says, for it is written, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And so Paul's statement here is that, that while he doesn't respect the man, he will respect the position that he is in. And he's looking at the high priest and he's saying, your behavior is not worthy of my respect, but I will respect the position that you're in. And so we understand that respect is won by character, not position. Verse 6, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he cried out to the, in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am, am I being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead? 
When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither of an angel nor a spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. And so this sort of again brings up the, the question of, of how should we interact with the society that we live in? Um, you know, I thought, I thought Christians were just respect governing authorities. Um, in fact, I, I know that Paul wrote those words that were to respect governing authorities, but the interesting thing is he wrote it from prison. Here he rebukes the high priest. He looks straight at the Sanhedrin. He knew he, who he was talking to and he rebukes him. And then we think about Jesus and here's this person who is basically the, the court ruler. And when Jesus uh, gets hit in the mouth, he looks right at this, this court ruler. You could look at him sort of as a law, a, a law enforcement. He, you could look at him as a policeman. This guy punches him in the mouth and what Jesus does is he immediately exposes his hateful character. And so we see again that as Christians, we're not passive pushovers, but compassionate justice seekers. Uh, we pray for those in leadership. We respect the position that God has placed them in, but respect for the individual is won by their character, not their position. And so can I pray for my president and at the same time long for a person of better character? You bet I can. And I, in fact, I don't know if I've ever done anything else. And so you look at the, the, the place that we live and you look at the, the government that we have. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a good lesson here for us. How should we be interacting with our governing authorities? We respect the position that they're in. God has placed them there. We pray for them. But we don't have to honor the character of people that go against God. We can, call for, we can call for a higher standard. We can call out the places where uh, our government misses God's mark and, and call for a higher standard. But the interesting thing that Paul does here is he immediately puts the emphasis in the right place. He then sees that here's this group of people and, and really the issue here is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So here's the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and they, there's some that don't believe in the resurrection and there's some that do. And so Paul, he backs away from defending himself and he puts the spotlight back on Jesus, in particular Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 9 it says, The shouting grew loud and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? What if, what if he did see something? We don't have a problem with the resurrection. When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them and bring him back into the barracks. And so the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish leadership, they demonstrate a lack of accord on doctrine. They're not in the same place. And they begin to tear themselves apart on this central teaching of the resurrection of the dead. Violence ensues yet again, and the commander re removes Paul from the situation. And what the leadership is showing is that they're untruthful, they're lost, they're hypocritical, and they're not trustworthy. Um, that's what the leadership of the Jewish people has demonstrated to this point. And they are the leadership of the Jewish people. They're under Rome, they sort of are there, but they have authority. And they've proven that they're, they're, not, that they're not truthful, that they're lost, that they're hypocrites, and that they aren't trustworthy. And so we look at that and we go, is it okay to point out the places where our governing authorities are untruthful or lost or hypocritical or they're not trustworthy? It's all right to do that. It's good to do that. But what Paul immediately does is he puts the emphasis in the right place, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And this is where the division takes place, is, is can, can the resurrection of the dead take place? In particular, could the resurrection of Jesus from the dead take place? And so he immediately, he's, he's giving them an opportunity to repent. And so if you think about the Jewish people, this Jewish nation, Jesus stood before them a couple decades before. And, and, and Paul was part of that leadership, right? He is a changed man. But Jesus stood in front of this group of people. He performed miracles in front of this group of people. And they rejected him. That's, that's kind of mind-boggling to think about, that, that Jesus was there. He performed miracles in front of them. In fact, right before Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And there's this resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And the Jewish leadership, they say, we have, do you see the miracles he's doing? They don't say, we don't believe he's doing the miracles. They say, do you, do you see the miracles he's doing? If we don't stop him, the whole world is going to go after him. In fact, let's make sure we kill Lazarus as well because we don't want this, this, this embodiment of the life that Jesus gives walking around. We want, to, we want to kill those who are raised for, to, to life by God, and we want to kill him. We don't, we don't want God's rule in our life. And so these are the people that are supposed to be representing God, and yet their fundamental struggle is the same struggle that all humanity faces. That in the Garden of Eden, we chose to know the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves and determine right and wrong on our own definition. And so what happens to this group of people, and this is what Jesus draws out with the Pharisees, is that they have an idolatry problem. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You're more worried about what people think about you than you are what God thinks about you. You're consumed by receiving uh, a praise from others, but you're not worried about whether you're living for God or not. So your idol, the idol that you are struggling with, Pharisee, is, is that you care more about what people think. You're more concerned about power and prestige and calling the shots for yourself than you are allowing God to be in control of the situation. Jesus draws that out, and Paul is doing the same thing here couple generations go by and it's the same problem for the Jewish nation. They haven't learned. At least the leadership hasn't learned. They haven't grown. They haven't seen their idolatry issue. Instead they say, no, we're fine. Everything's good over here. And so we have to all come to this place as well. When you're confronted by God and he, he demonstrates to you your, your sinfulness, if he shows me my sinfulness, do I say, no, everything's fine. I don't have an idolatry issue. I don't put created things in front of you. I don't struggle with uh, the, receiving praise from people instead of praise from God. I don't struggle uh, with making uh, good things God things. That's not a problem for me. And the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear and he says, yes, you do. You, you, you struggle with making good things God things. And there's still little idols set up in your heart that we need to get rid of. We've got a clean house here. And the one I want you to deal with right now is, what's the Spirit of God saying to you? The one I want you to deal with right now is, And what we can do in that moment is the scripture says that there's, there's basically three ways we can interact with God's spirit. We can be filled with him. 
and abide, listen and obey. Or we can quench, which means to pour water on. So he says, hey, I wanted to let you know there's this idol issue that you have right now. And you go, shh, silence. And when you quench, the other word that's used in the scriptures is that grieves God's heart. He's saying, I love you. And I don't want you to make uh, a good thing, a God thing. But you're doing it right now. You're doing it with money. You're doing it right now. You're doing it with sexuality. You're doing it right now. You're doing it with materialism. You're doing it right now. You're doing it with food. You're doing it right now. You're doing it with your work. You're doing it right now. You're doing it with your marriage. You're actually making your spouse out to, uh, you're putting the burden of deity on your spouse as though they could fulfill all your needs. You're doing it with your children. You're trying to live vicariously through them instead of living in the vicarious salvation that God gives us through Jesus Christ. You're doing it in all these ways, your possessions, your experiences, other people, these created things. You're taking a created thing and you're making it an ultimate thing. And, and he says, I love you too much to allow you to try, try and find all the fulfillment that you need in a created thing. It's a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. And so I want you to know that and I want you to turn away from it and you can abide and be filled and allow the spirit of God to work with you in that situation. Or you can get out the bucket of water and pour it on him and quench him and grieve his heart. And what the, this crowd is doing is they're going even a step further than that. It's not just pour a bucket of water on him. It's we want him dead. Um, this messenger who's come to us to tell us that we need to repent of our way of living where we live for the, uh, a created thing instead of the creator, he's come to tell us that we need to repent from that. We don't want to listen to him. Take him outside the town and stone him to death. If, if, the, if the governing authorities of Rome didn't intervene, we'd have another Stephen story where they'd take him outside and they would have stoned him to death. And what we all struggle with is not listening to that voice. Telling that voice, everything's fine. Everything's good. So in John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. So Jesus makes these unbelievable statements. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He makes these unbelievable predictions. He tells the disciples multiple times that he's going to be betrayed by one of his own followers, that he's going to be turned over to the Jewish authorities and that he's going to be crucified. And then three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. He tells them that multiple times. The first time uh, Peter looks at him, he says, that can't be the plan. And he tells Peter, you're judging things according to human standards. Don't do that. I want you to listen to what I'm telling you is coming and trust me. Eventually, Peter gets it. Eventually, we come to that place. But then through his death on the cross, there's the, the remission of sins. There's a full payment of sins, right? When Jesus dies on the cross, he yells out, it is finished. Uh, the, the Greek for that is, is pay, it's paid in full. He yells out, your debt is paid in full. Your debt of sin, your debt of wrongdoing, your debt of rebellion against God. It's all paid in full once and for all. You don't owe God anything. Jesus paid it. And so you trust him and you say, Jesus, I recognize that you exchanged your infinite glory for my 
shame. And you, so you exchange that, and, and, and then you raise me up. As Jesus was raised from the dead, he was vindicated to be the Messiah that he claimed to be. But we're also placed into that resurrection, and we become new creations, and we live a new life. And so he is the way, the only way to the Father, the only way to be right with God. He is the truth, the one truth that you can count on to save you. The one truth that is not subjective about how you feel about it. This isn't like, you know, do you like barbecue or cheeseburgers? This is not some subjective thing. This is the God of the universe who says, I objectively love you and I have objectively saved you from your sin. And if you want to know peace and be at harmony with God, then you can trust that Jesus was raised from the dead. He is the truth and he will give you life. And so Paul is giving the Sanhedrin this opportunity to repent, to trust in Jesus. You're sitting here this morning, you're hearing it. If you have been living your life as though God didn't exist, or as though he did exist, but he didn't deserve control, if you've been living your life as though truth were subjective and it was up to you to determine what was right and wrong, that's sin. That's rebellion against the God of the universe. And what Jesus is saying to you loud and clear this morning is if you'll turn away from that and trust his death on the cross to pay for your sin and his resurrection from the dead to prove that he is the Messiah and that he appeared to many eyewitnesses, that you can trust that he was raised from the dead and you can have new life. If you'll turn, he'll be the way that leads you back to God. He'll be the truth that you can count on in every circumstance and he'll give you life like you've never experienced it before. I think in the course of my life, the opportunities that God gave me to respond to that message. And the times where maybe I didn't fully understand and needed to ask some questions. times where maybe I looked at him kind of like this. No, I'm staying right where I'm at. I got this. I don't need you. Man, and I, I tell you, I did it for a while. Truth is subjective. I'll figure it out for myself. This feels good. I'm going to make this truth. I don't have to give in to this God He's, uh, I'm calling the shots for myself. And I can tell you the only place that ever left me was, was my head in my hands wondering what on earth, what am I doing? This isn't working. I just, I just experienced my own brokenness and my own problems over and over again and there's no life in this. And then eventually God brought me to that place where, where you, you, you finally just say, I'm done with this. I'm not going to try and call the shots anymore. You are in control. I am a created being and you are the creator. I am sinful and broken and in need of salvation and you are the savior. 
I, I can't find the way. I don't know the truth, and my life is a mess. Jesus, will you be the way, the truth, and the life to me? And he says, of course. He says, don't you know that's why I came? Because I love you? Because the pain that you feel trying to figure things out on your own, I feel it too. Because I care about you. I don't want you to do that anymore. And this is the opportunity that Paul is giving to the Sanhedrin. To know God. To allow him to lead. To live for him and not the approval of men. And so Paul shares this message and he's taken back into Roman custody. And it says the following night, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Uh, Jesus appears to him. And one of the interesting things about, um, you hear the word apostle, uh, in order to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of, of Jesus's uh, life and his resurrection. And so one of the things that Paul is doing in this is, and what Luke is doing is he's showing that Paul has apostolic authority, but the Lord stood by him. He stood by Paul and said, have courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. And so Paul's back in Roman hands and he receives this direct revelation from Jesus to be courageous and to be ready for the long and difficult path ahead of him. You've, you've, you've shared my message throughout the Mediterranean world and you've, you've brought many people to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now I brought you back to Jerusalem and you shared this message one more time with the Sanhedrin. I mean, Jesus is like, look, I stood there. I was punched in the mouth too. They, they, they crucified me. If they have their way, they'll kill you too. But Jesus is saying, I actually have a different path for you, Paul. You're going to take this to the next place. You're going to take this to, the, to Rome. And within the outline of the book of Acts, you have in Acts 1.8, uh, before that they say, Jesus, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons with the Father is fixed, but you're to go to Jerusalem and wait for power. And when you receive power, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is your purpose, to be my witnesses. First in your hometown, then uh, in the surrounding area with people that are similar to you in Judea, and then to the surrounding area, to Samaria, with people that you're actually enemies with. And then I want you to take this message to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts ends with Paul reaching Rome. All roads lead to Rome and the gospel then moves to the ends of the earth from there. But this is the path that God has for Paul. He's going to be the one that's going to take the gospel to Rome. But this is going to be a long and difficult path ahead of him. And he says, I want you to take courage, have courage. And what we have to understand as individual believers is that God is saying the same thing to us. Have courage. As you've testified within your family, I want you to go into your workplace. Have courage. Have you, as you've testified in your workplace, I want you to carry it into your neighborhood. Have courage. As you've, as you've shared in those places, I want you to reveal the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to your friends. Have courage. You're my witnesses. Don't back down. Don't be afraid. The other thing that we have to watch out for as believers is, is we need to be known for the right things. 
And so if you ask unbelievers, non-Christians, what they, what they think about the church and what they think about Christians, uh, the words that show up are hypocritical, anti-homosexual, sheltered, too political, and judgmental. When was the last time you turned on the TV or read an article on the internet and there was an argument where they were saying, you know, the problem I have with Christians is they talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead too much. When was the last time you read that article? But instead, what we read about us is, you know, they're too political. They're too much this. They're, they, they, they sure hate gay people. They sure, they, sure, they sure think that their morality is better than mine. But when I watch their lives, they fail all the time too. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. And so what Paul does is he actually makes it clear when he addresses them, if you read the previous chapter, he addresses them. He says, I was broken and a failure just like you. I, I thought I had it figured out in my own ability, and it turns out I didn't know hardly anything about God. I mean, I knew some things, but I didn't know him. I had head knowledge, but I didn't have heart knowledge. I, I didn't know him. And this is the problem that, that, that we, we all face before coming to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But before we say, God, I trust you, and I'm going to follow after Jesus. I surrender my life to him. He has saved me from my sins, and he's deserving of my allegiance. I, I'm not going to take this as some casual thing. This isn't fire insurance. He has my allegiance, and I'm going to go after him. And Paul says, I was just like you. But God saved me. And he wants to do the same for you. And Jesus says, good job in Jerusalem. Rome's next. Let me introduce you to Nero. <laughs> and that's who Paul shares the gospel with. That's who he stands trial before. And so when you think about applying this to your life, do you approach truth as just some subjective thing? I mean, that is the water that we swim in, right? Trying to explain uh, believing in subjective truth to, to, to the world we live in, is it's like trying to explain water to fish. You just swim in it. Truth is subjective. You know, you figure it out for you. You, you find out what you like and call that truth. I'll find what I like and I'll call that truth. Jesus steps in and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I want you to learn to like me. Is it subjective or is it objective truth? Well, how does what you know about Jesus inform your answers? Are there places where truth is subjective? I think so. Jesus is not one of those places. Salvation is not one of those places. Who God is is not one of those places. And then the other question is, how can you guide conversations about truth to Jesus? So you find yourself in your workplace and you're shooting the breeze or maybe you've got somebody like-minded and you, you find yourself bashing the government. Um, I'm sure none of you do that. Um, or maybe you're having an argument about politics. Or maybe you're having an argument about sexuality and somebody says, do you really believe in a biblical sexual ethic? Yeah, I do. Why? Well, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then what he says is true. Um, do, do you really believe in, in the value of, of unborn life? Yes, I do. 
Why? Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then what the scriptures say about life is the truth. And you can go on down the line. Do you really believe, fill in the blank, yes, I do. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, then what he says goes. And so the central question is not do I have the right morality. The central question is not do I have the right sexuality. The central question is not do I have the right political views. It's was Jesus raised from the dead? And when you go through the book of Acts, what we have in the, there's sermons at the book of Acts. They, every single one of them does all five of these things. They say Jesus was crucified. God raised him from the dead. He appeared to many eyewitnesses. He ascended into glory. He sits in a position of power and authority. And in him is forgiveness of sins. Every time they do those five things. He was crucified. He was raised. He appeared to many eyewitnesses. He ascended into heaven and sits in power. And he is the name under which there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. In him is forgiveness of sins. So repent and believe. And so we, that's what we're encouraged to do. Uh, so where is Jesus encouraging you to take truth about him? As, as a believer, where, where is he encouraging you to take truth? Maybe it's, maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a, I, I don't know. I'm not the spirit of God. I can't answer that question for you. It's a good thing. But if you talk to God and you say, God, you know, what matters to me is, as I want to see heaven, I, I, want to, I, want to, I, want the, I want the table at heaven to just be so full that we have to build another. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I, I want to see hell empty and heaven full. And so I'm here to be your witness and I'm going to share this message. And so God, who do you want me to share with? He's not going to be like, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> this is what Jesus reveals in John chapter 15. That if we abide in him, anything that we ask for, he'll grant to us. When we're, when we're connected to the vine, when we're living in relationship with Jesus, we ask the questions that he wants to answer, and then he answers them. Let me pray. Uh, God, this morning we come to you, I pray, I come to you humble and willing to be taught. And I, I pray that is the truth for each of us, that we come to you humble and willing to be taught. I, I don't know everything. I never will. But I do know you, and you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so I trust the questions of life to you. Um, God, I pray that we would, we would be your witnesses, that we would share the truth that Jesus Christ loves the world, that God the Father loves the world so much that he sent his only begotten son that any who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the message that we share, that Christ died for sins, that he was raised from the dead, that he appeared to many eyewitnesses, that he ascended into power and glory, and that in him is forgiveness of sins. May we point our conversations in that direction. May you remind us of those truths regularly, and will we find life in you and not the little g-gods that distract us.
I pray for those who don't know you yet this morning that this gospel message was clear. Um, Boy, it should just weigh on our hearts that the ones that we love and care about and that are seeking you are able to find you. And so, uh, Spirit, I pray that you would interact with those who don't yet know you, that haven't surrendered their life to you as Lord and Savior. They haven't given you their allegiance yet. They haven't tried to, they, they just they, they just haven't done it yet, God. And yet you are knocking, you are at the door, you stand and knock, and I pray that they would open and allow you to be all that you are to me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in and joining us today. We really hope this message encouraged you to take steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. Next week, we're going to continue on in Acts chapter 23 and are going to talk about how God is able to use evil for good. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we are so glad that you are a part of the family.